Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. We've all been pretty busy during the World Cup, podcasting on other networks, appearing on radio stations, writing one or two pieces here and there. So it's it's only now that we've had time to come together and just review what went wrong and occasionally right for South American sides in Russia. First, I'll introduce the team as always. We have Simon Edwards, who is currently on holiday in Italy. How's it going there, Simon? Yeah, good. You know, with with four European sides in the World Cup semi-final and you know, World Cup fever taking over the world, I thought I'd come to one of the great football nations of Italy. And no, no one's no one cares about the World Cup. It turns out here, <laughs> I don't know what happened, but I'm enjoying it anyway. Uh, good fun and yeah, looking forward to some semi-finals and to reflect on some South American performances. Also joining me is somebody on this side of the Atlantic, and that is Austin Miller. How's it going, Austin? It's going well, Adam. Uh, been a bit of a come down here at the end of this World Cup. I didn't want to see four European sides in the semifinals, but here we are. I'm trying to get myself motivated for these last two matches. But look, it's all about 2019. Brazil 2019, Copa America already on the radar. Preparations have begun. And there in the home of World Cup semi-finalists, England, is uh, is Tom Robinson. How, how are you, Tom? Yeah, doing pretty good. Uh, obviously, a shame that all our South American nations have crashed out. But um, yeah, the the mood is very good here. The weather is great. Um, and I'm off to Portugal tomorrow because obviously I didn't think we were going to get this far. So yeah, all good here. I'm sure you'll be able to find some fellow British people on holiday in Portugal. Okay. Uh, I think it's difficult to find a general reason that suits kind of all the five sides from South America and like why they did have the problems they did in 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 Russia 2018. So, um, so yeah, different issues and the teams are at different stages of a cycle. I think it's fair to say. So what we're going to do is we're going to break it down country by country. Um, And we're going to start by looking at the two sides that got to the quarterfinals. So I'm going to start with Uruguay as they've officially finished fifth in this World Cup, which is being seen as an achievement by by some people there. Now, I've, I've read quite a few pieces on Uruguay since that, since their elimination. There's a good one by um, Sean Lawson for Le Celeste blog, um, who, who gives quite a negative take on, on Uruguay's uh, World Cup campaign, which is quite interesting. I know Martin de Cruz has also appeared on World Football Index pod when we did the special on Uruguay. For example, he's more positive about what he saw from Uruguay in this World Cup. So there are kind of two sides of Uruguay's World Cup story. I probably fall on the side of of they could have done better than they did. I personally was a little bit disappointed from what I saw in that in that France game. Tom, which side of the argument do you fall on? It's a tricky one to weigh up really because while I think they definitely could have gone further, like you said, I also don't think they disappointed. So you, I, th- I think quarterfinals for them was was a good achievement without necessarily being a spectacular one. Um, but certainly, certainly not not a disappointment. I think 
again, if you look at the wider context of, uh, you know, something that everyone talks about, a country of three, 3.5 million people uh, punching above their weight. I think that is something that's always got to be applauded. They've got a rich history. The setup that Tabarez has put in place in Uruguayan football is is re- still reaping the rewards. And I, th- I think there's I think there's a lot of positives to be taken. You know, the fact their disciplinary record was was excellent. I think that sort of old trope of Uruguayans um, and their sort of dirty plays was was out the window. And I'm sure that's something we'll talk about either on this pod or another. I think there was promising signs of their midfield coming through. The defence was excellent. Um, And realistically, they went out to a very good team um, on two sort of small errors, really. A set piece that one they probably shouldn't have given away in the first place and then didn't defend great. And then obviously that uh, error by Muslera. So, at that stage of the World Cup, you you really are looking at fine margins. And, and obviously Cavani was a huge miss in the quarterfinal as well. So I don't think it would have taken them too too much to have snuck through against France there on another day with with a fully fit squad and and the and the and, you know the emergence of Laxalt at left back was was a promise Torreira showed why he's so highly rated and and it looks like he's off to Arsenal and I think that'll be a very good signing Bentancur was decent Bessino was good as well so I'm I'm definitely more on on the positive side of thing and, and I I think the the sort of takeaway is it's positive because the future's looking good as well um, it looks all in place for them to to keep performing at this level and and yeah so yeah generally positive from me. Yeah, I, I just feel that Tabarez. I know that he's almost like godlike status for Uruguayans. So you know, criticising him is almost an issue in itself. Um, but I do think that he got a lot of things wrong in this World Cup. But certainly the management of of some of the some of the players too often he went for experience over over talent and I think the the biggest mistake he made was was in this quarter final against France last week where Cavani was out and you know he he had options there he, he could have brought Maxi Gomez into the side who's had a great season in the Liga um he could have brought in uh, Aris Galleta, for example, who would have given them a little bit more creativity. But instead, he went for a safe option. Well, what's, what is safe in the mind of Tabarez anyway? And and, and he used uh, Stuani instead. And, you know, he, he's just not good enough for, for that kind of level of football. And I think we saw that. You know, Suarez just became more and more frustrated with him, Uruguay kept knocking it up, up there, and with Cavani missing, they didn't have somebody to play effectively off of Suarez, and and it, and it was really damaging to to, to their display. Um, so yeah, and in that first game where they played the kind of a really rigid four four two against Egypt, yeah, he he had uh, Aris Galleta starting in that game. And, but you know he he was out of position. That's not the that's not the player we've seen for Cruzeiro in the Copa Libertadores, is it? So I, I, I found it frustrating. I think I, I agree with you that Laxalt was in the end one of the one of the stars of this Uruguay side and uh, and Dorea as well. 
But both of those players, you know, they weren't playing in those first couple of games, were they? So, you know, it it, it, it seems to me that Tabarez got it wrong when, when I look at it overall. But here's the thing that is interesting to me, Adam, is I think it's fair to say that Tabarez got it wrong with certain decisions. But Uruguay still won all three of their matches in the group stage and chalk some of that up to opposition, if you will. And they still reached the quarterfinals, which I think is right about where we would have expected them. Yes, they could have reached the semifinals. And yes, they probably could have put in a better performance against France in that quarterfinal. But France is a really good team and they may be the team that wins the World Cup. So for Uruguay to have gone out to them, I don't think is that big of a disappointment, which I think is where it's really difficult to kind of judge this World Cup for them. Because, as you said, the performances maybe weren't as impressive as they could have or maybe should have been. But the results still, I think, are pretty positive for Uruguay. A World Cup quarterfinal for them yet again is a really, really positive World Cup. So that's where I think it's just really hard to come to a conclusion on them. Yeah, look, my, my thing is, and, I, and I've said this consistently on, on this part over the years, um, is I think personally that Uruguay do themselves a disservice by playing the, the way they do. Where um, we come on to Argentina later, which a team that possibly have a similar issue but not quite a start, is the the idea of you know the fighting for the shirt, the huevos. Yeah, is so overbearing. And, uh, and 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 it's at a cost of you know being able to play a, a lot more expansive game. But I believe that certainly these Uruguayan midfielders, the the ones that ended up starring, uh, Betancourt, Nandez, Torreira, um, I think I've forgotten one as well. Vecino. Vecino. Yeah, they are they are capable of of, of playing a lot better football. Than, than what we saw in, in in this World Cup overall, and I feel that when Tavares got them into a system that suited those players, which was that game against Russia, we saw the best of this Uruguay side. But he, you know, he tweaked it a little bit against Portugal, and arguably that worked because it was it's more of a diamond shape, and and he and he had uh, Torreira there in a more defensive midfield role, and 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 that did work, but. You know, against France, it just felt a little bit too conservative again, and uh, and yeah, and, and and they failed to create, and, and that was down to Tabarez's system and the personnel that he used, in my opinion. Yeah, for me, I think I, in the group stage particularly, they really should have. Again, it's, it's difficult to say because Uruguay have what they have, and and that's they can kind of have that in the bank. They can always resort. They can bring on Cristiano Rodriguez. They can bring on the tried and trusted guys who they know are going to be disciplined and organised. But I think, you know, when you have such a strong defence, when you have good attackers, in the group stage at least, just just go for it. Like, try and be a bit more progressive. Try and be a bit more experimental. And then if you face France, then if you feel that you can't trust that to go up against the, you know, probably more of a talented side in France. France have got one of the best sides in this World Cup. Tactically, they haven't always been at their best, but you know, on paper at least, they're a very, very strong side. Then maybe you you resort to to some of the more conservative approach. Like, you know, I do think in that group stage, it was a chance to give some of their young guys a bit of freedom and kind of give them empower them to go out there and, and maybe 
set the tone for a future development of Uruguay. Even if you get to the quarterfinals, you get to the next round and you say, OK, we have that to come on, but let's be conservative. I don't think there's anything wrong with being conservative. But I think in the group stage, uh, rather than making sure all of the bits and pieces were perfectly in place for the future rounds, they could have been a bit more expressive and maybe shown a glimpse of the future and uh, be, you know, be a bit more progressive in that stage, even if they had to go more conservative against some of the stronger opposition. I agree that the group stage wasn't maybe the free-flowing attacking football that they might have played against weaker opposition, but at the same time, pretty much all of that midfield is playing in their first World Cup, and realistically, the group stage is it's kind of just a primer to kind of get you ready for the knockout stage. So, you know, like Austin said, three wins, no goals conceded. I think as much as they were, they certainly would have, we sort of, we certainly would have liked to have seen them hit the ground running and sort of blow Saudi Arabia or even a, in what was in hindsight, what was a poor Egypt side, blow them away. But realistically, I, I think that's, I think it's almost a measure of how highly we rate some of these players that, we think they could have even done better than they did. And when you when you look at how inexperienced the midfield was and what a small pool of players they really have to to pull from, I think it's um, yeah, I think it's sometimes easy to get carried away and and yeah. But I, I definitely take your point, Adam, that there, it wasn't a perfect tournament by any means. But I think generally they can't be too upset with their campaign. And they got Can a great I, reception when they came back to Uruguay. Um, yeah, no, it's great. Uh, I saw that. It was really nice with all the fans coming out. And I think that's fair. And again, we're going to see a lot more of this team. Um, I, you know, The question is, of course, how are they going to be incorporated if, if some of these these more expressive midfielders can be, can be given the platform to express themselves? But you're right. I mean, this is a Uruguayan side that overachieved and were only beaten by one of the best teams in the tournament. So... Yeah, I think I think we should uh, appreciate them for what they brought to the competition, and, and yeah, you know, it's a decent result or final out against one of the best teams in the in the in the World Cup. So yeah, you're right, fair enough. And also didn't have who was probably their best player for that match against France. You know, Cavani was a big absence for Uruguay, and that was probably the reasoning that Tabatis chose to go as conservative as he did. He probably shouldn't have gone that conservative, but if Cavani's in the lineup, maybe he decides that he can have more of a go at France, kind of like they did against Portugal. So I, I'm with. Simon and Tom here. I think this is a positive World Cup for Uruguay, and I think things will continue to build for them. And I think they're absolutely one of the teams that we have to watch out for in 2019 in Brazil. Yeah, it's going to be interesting what happens to Tabares from here. There was a story reported after the France game that you know this was the end of the of the Tabares reign. Uh, but it, for now, it looks like he's going to continue for at least a, for at least another year. Tom, uh, I think you've got a little bit more detail on that. No? Only a little bit, I think. Yeah, it's it's more a case that his contract's ended and and it's all a bit up in the air at the moment. It might even come down to um, who is going to be president of the Uruguayan FA. Um, I think there's certainly a candidate coming in who who said that he wants Tavares to stay. Um, I personally think it's probably time that he moved on um and even if he was to take up a kind of director of football role and and just hand over the reins to Koito who's been under 20 manager under 17 manager kind of pretty much every level um so yeah it's it's up in the air at the moment as, as it seems to be with pretty much all the the nations we're discussing and it may well have even been resolved by the time this goes out yeah and and we should also note um uh, that the future does look pretty bright for uruguay in terms of of talent coming through 
the ranks anybody who watched the Under-20 World Cup last year, which was eventually won by England, of course, beating Venezuela in the final, will remember that Venezuela uh, beat Uruguay in the semi-final. And that was a very talented Uruguay side as well, wasn't it, Tom? You, there, there was many decent players in that World Cup. I can remember the fullback Jose Luis uh, Rodriguez, for example. Um, then you had uh, the, the centre-back, Santiago Bueno, and the midfielder Valverde, Federico Valverde, who just missed the cut for this World Cup. Um, and, uh, and, and, and also players that we did see in this World Cup, like Beth and Gore. So it's going to be a fascinating few years ahead for Uruguayan football, isn't it? And 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 how they will develop from from this point on. Yeah, certainly that the under twenty batch was really good, and you've got like Sarachi, De La Cruz, um, Joaquin Aldaiz. There's yeah, there's just loads of players coming through, and it's it's worth noting that a number of uh, the the team was part of the under twenty squad, and I think it was twenty thirteen that got to the final of the the under 20 world cup and again lost to france with pogba and titi so it really shows the importance and they've definitely got some good players coming through and it's going to be interesting to see what they can do at the uh sudamericano early next year okay we'll leave uruguay there and move on to brazil so before the tournament i think brazil was a was a popular pick amongst us all wasn't it to, to win the world cup in the end they went out in the quarter-final stage to Belgium, 2-1. They had many chances, and for me, if if Brazil had scored first in in this game, then, uh, you know, they would have sealed their their passage quite easily. But the fact they found themselves behind in this game told us a couple of things, I think. Firstly, you know, that, that was an unusual position for this Brazil side to be in. They arguably weren't tested that much in, in, in Commonwealth World Cup qualifying. They were very rarely behind. So when they did find themselves behind in a competitive encounter, they didn't particularly know exactly um, how to get back in it at first. And it wasn't until they were 2-0 down in that second half that we really saw a, a, a plan B. I think, Austin, you know, you made the point before the game and you were worried that, the, the absence of Casemiro would be costly, and uh, and and that certainly was was a was a huge absence for them in, in this clash. But generally, in the World Cup, for me, again, Brazil were never quite the Brazil we saw in in World Cup qualifying. I think I think there's a few reasons for that, but but one of the big reasons was Danny Alves was missing. As well, I, th- I think he gave the Brazil side a completely different dimension. Um, and yeah, I, I, but one of the big things for me, and I don't know if you agree with this, and I don't know if you remember saying, but during that run Gremio had in the Copa Libertadores last year, where Arturo emerged as the big star, I pondered on the fact that maybe this is a player that Brazil could incorporate into into this side straight away. Because for me, what this Brazil side lacked, as much as anything, was a player who could control and dictate the game from the middle of the park, especially against the bigger European sides who, who were so good at that. And, yeah, so I, I wonder, and I know that for a lot of people, it was seen as 
it, it came too soon. But for me, Arthur might have given Brazil uh, a, 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 a different look in, in this World Cup and maybe a more um, attractive one as well. Yeah, I think having Arturo would have given Brazil a different look. There's no doubt about that. But there's just so much pressure to get into that Brazil squad, and it's so difficult to make it into that 23 that I don't know that Cheech really felt comfortable with having a player who had yet to make an appearance for Brazil all of a sudden show up at the World Cup and be a vital part of the plan, maybe if, even if it just was a plan B. Uh, Arturo only had two appearances on the bench for Brazil in World Cup qualification. That was in the final Conmebol slots against Bolivia and Chile. He didn't appear in either of those matches. It would have been a big, big step for a player who's really only played at a high level for 12 to 18 months now in his entire career. I think it would have been a risky go for Cheech. I think a manager who is, you know, not afraid, who is kind of wants it to be like it always has and wants to rely on that. You saw it all the time when he was at Corinthians. So I think that that would have been a difficult decision for him to have made. Uh, to the point that Brazil hadn't had experience playing from behind, you're correct in that it didn't happen very often, but it did happen once in Conmebol World Cup qualification, and they went and played the second-best team on the continent in Uruguay, fell behind by a ninth-minute penalty, and then thrashed them 4-1 with a hat-trick from Paulinho. So, look, they didn't do it a lot, but to say that Brazil didn't have any experience playing from behind I, I think is a bit facetious. Um as far as the Belgium match was concerned, Casemiro was a huge loss, and it's disappointing for a Brazil team that easily could have won this World Cup to be out in the quarterfinals, and it's frustrating, but it's not, I don't know, it's not some great failure, I think. I think Brazil gave Belgium a lot of punches in that second half and, and didn't land the one that got them back into the match that they would have needed. Like you said, Adam, if they would have scored first, that match probably goes a lot differently, and they had chances to score first. Thiago Silva was right there and couldn't force that ball home. The first goal that they conceded, I don't know that there's much that Brazil could have really done about that. It was an unfortunate bounce. And then the second one, they just got wide open on the counterattack and, and should have been better. And, and, you know, Casemiro would have been there to shut that down. Fernandinho should have been there to shut that down. So it's a frustrating World Cup for Brazil. And it's unfortunate that obviously World Cups only come once in every four years and they can't, you know, run it back next year with this same squad and probably potentially be successful. Uh, but I don't know that this World Cup is necessarily a great failure. It's a failure, certainly, because, look, Brazil didn't even better their result from 2014, but they obviously didn't go out in the manner that they did in 2014. Uh, this team, I've been saying this on a lot of different shows and appearances is the favorite for next year's Copa America. That's on home soil. I think there'll be significant pressure for Brazil to win that. Uh, Cheech will remain the Brazilian manager probably for as long as he wants to, because there's just nobody else at this point. The rumblings are that if Cheech does choose to step down, it would be Renato Gaúcho, the Grêmio manager. Uh, Cheech, he is not Renato Gaúcho. I think that's fair to say. So, this is still a good Brazil team. They didn't show like they did in the World Cup qualifiers, and that's a bit disappointing. Uh, but they still strung together three consecutive 2-0 wins, uh, obviously in varying methods. And it's a frustrating exit at the World Cup. Um, but when you look at the rest of South America, I think this is still a Brazil team that maybe bar Uruguay is head and shoulders above everybody else. Um, the issue is just that being head and shoulders above everybody else 
doesn't put you maybe where it once was. And Brazil came up against a Belgium team that I think it's fair to say was kind of their equal on the day. Uh, and sometimes when you face your equal, um, it takes a break here or there. You know, Brazil, I think, was the better team in that quarterfinal match, um, but obviously wasn't quite better enough to win that match or didn't get the breaks that they needed to win that match. So a frustrating World Cup for Brazil. Uh, I would have liked to have seen Renato Augusto earlier. The loss of Danny Alves was obviously huge. Um, Fagner is no Danny Alves. Look, he's a top-tier Brazilian player, but at the end of the day, he's an immobile right back who's really good at crunching challenges and not much else. He was kind of out of his depth at this World Cup. Um, Gabriel Jesus didn't fire goals in like I think there was the expectation to. Uh, Roberto Firmino, who obviously was the favorite of some to come in, got his chance against Belgium and didn't take it, had a number of chances at the World Cup that he didn't take. Obviously did score the one goal, but certainly could have done better. Um, so yeah, it, it's a, it's a weird feeling, I think for me, from a Brazilian perspective for this, because it was frustrating, but it doesn't feel like, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. What do you guys make of this world cup for Brazil? Are you with my agreement that it, I don't know. I, I, it's a, I don't know. It's frustrating, but it doesn't seem like the end of the world, I guess, like 2014 did. Um, for me, uh, I think the big thing for me was Neymar's performance. And again, the diving stuff is, is what it is. I, I don't really care as much as most people do. But for me, it felt like often Brazil will work in a good position and it felt like they had to go through Neymar. Neymar had to have a touch before they tried to score. And sometimes they were working in good movements and he would receive the ball and then stand up two defenders and pause and do a couple of step overs and go back. And again, he's an incredible player. Neymar's incredibly talented, quick, can destroy a defender for pace, can beat him for skill, can bend one into the top corner as he almost did in the game against Belgium. And that obviously changes the entire narrative. But for me, he did disrupt the flow of the Brazilian attacks. Um, and I think that is potentially a problem. Um, I think we saw in qualifying that he really got on board with what Chicha was doing. But again, it feels like on the biggest stage, he has to be the main man. He has to have that moment where he stops and does a couple of step overs and goes for a nutmeg. And, and obviously that's great at a certain moment, but it did feel that some of it was unnecessary and some of it disrupted the, the flow of the Brazilian attacks. So at times, just give it to Coutinho and let him do it or allow the two players you've drawn across when you've paused and then quickly move it. You know, at times he was great and at times he was frustrating. But I do think Neymar's ego is still a factor in this Brazil side when it comes to the biggest games. And that's what's and what's so interesting about that, Simon, is I didn't feel like that was the case in qualification. It felt like Cheech and Brazil had figured out how Neymar can best play with this team and how he can most be effective. But like you said, it did feel like he played just that little differently here at the World Cup than he did in qualification. And I think that's certainly one of the reasons that Brazil were kind of left Brazil left Russia as frustrated as they did. Yeah, I definitely think that this World Cup in general has kind of shown that even if you have a world-class player or one of the best players in the world, that's not necessarily always going to be enough if you can't find the way to to get the best out of them in a, in a team scenario. And, and like you said, it was weird because in in qualification, they looked like they had cracked that. And I had Brazil down as as finalists, but at the very least, I thought they were going to reach the semifinals. But at the end of the day, I think it's going back to this point of fine margins and Casemiro had been playing, if if Danny Alves had been fit, um, even if they'd just got 
they've made that pressure right at the end count. But I was convinced that if they'd played that game another five, ten minutes, they Brazil would have got an equaliser and, and, and got on to, to win the game. So they've come up against a, a very talented Belgian squad. And, and I think you can generally feel not too bad about the performance because, again, you know, like with Uruguay, the the state of the team and, and the future is looking exceptionally bright. So I think that tempers some of the frustration and, and disappointment with the team. And for, for me, they were the the only sort of really, really proper contender out of the, the South American nations. I think last World Cup, I think all the South American nations were kind of maybe in a bit, slightly better place. Um, and this time it felt kind of like Brazil was the one sole hope. So, yeah, perhaps disappointment, but... I, th- I, th- I think Brazil ultimately suffered for the weakness of the other South American nations, though. Because um, I, I go back to what I said earlier, where I, 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 I still do think that they weren't properly tested in, in World Cup qualifying. I, I wasn't sure going in, but having seen them play against some of the European nations in, in, in this World Cup and how they've struggled sometimes certainly against kind of big, powerful strikers that, that they, they seem to have some issues with at times. Um, and Lukaku obviously uh, made them pay in, in that quarterfinal in the end. I just, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's going to be interesting in the next qualifying cycle if, if it can be a little bit more competitive for Brazil than, than the one we saw last time out. Oh, there's something else we need to discuss. So I know my feeling on this issue and also Austin's to an extent, and I'm sure we'll get into it in a minute, but there is an elephant in the room um, in, the, in, in this Brazil discussion, and that's whether Roberto Firmino would have made a difference to, to, to this Brazil side or not, and if so, how big of a difference he, he would have made. Um, I know many of our listeners would want this question asked. So, I'm going to ask it. What difference would have Roberto Firmino made to this Brazil side? Austin, I'll start with you. No difference. Um, He's a good player. I thought he got his chances at this World Cup and didn't necessarily take them as he could have. There's a reason that Gabriel Jesus starts. Uh, I would encourage anybody who's shocked by my answer there to look at the piece that Tim Stillman wrote for World Football in the next before the Belgium match as to why Gabriel Jesus is so important to Brazil and why he continued to start throughout this World Cup despite not having the goal scoring return. Um, they are different players. Uh, I think you could say that Liverpool Roberto Firmino is, is better than Brazil Roberto Firmino. I think he fits better in with that system than he does at Brazil. And because of that, that's why Gabriel Jesus continued to start, because he has that understanding with Neymar, because he knows how Neymar likes to play off the left wing, because that's how Gabriel Jesus played when he was at Palmeiras. Gabriel Jesus's work rate is phenomenal. He didn't score the goals, but I think he still made a difference for Brazil at this World Cup. And then when Brazil got their backs up against the wall in that Belgium match, down two goals at halftime, Roberto Firmino came on because he is probably a better goal scorer at this World Cup. But it's not all about scoring the goals. Um, so I am perfectly fine with the way that Cheech handled this Brazil squad throughout most of the World Cup. I would have liked to have seen Renato Augusto earlier. Uh, but other than that, for the most part, I thought Cheech did a pretty good job of managing Brazil in this World Cup. And I don't think 
that starting Roberto Firmino as a true out-and-out nine from day one, that this World Cup would have gone differently for Brazil. Yeah, I I agree with Austin there. Um, I think he summed it up perfectly. I think the people who don't want Gabriel Jesus in the the starting role are kind of the same people who don't maybe appreciate uh, the type of thing that Sterling does does for England, for example. It's, It's not all about the goals, which sounds silly from when you're talking about a striker, but I think he was unfortunate. And I think Firmino kind of had a bit more popular opinion behind him. He's got maybe a, a more, more of a profile. Um, certainly in the UK, he's, you know, after Liverpool's run to the, the Champions League final, I think there's a lot of goodwill towards him. And, and maybe the fact that when he did come on and, and looked like he was perhaps making more chances, um, it was because he was coming on when defences were tied and and he was able to kind of show his best, which again points to the fact that Cheech was was p- perhaps correct to use him as more of an impact sub. So, yeah, I'm uh, Team Jesus on that one. Yeah, again, um, I can't really argue too much. I, I, you know, I can see why people are drawn to Firmino. He's, you know, he's in your face. He's all over the place. He's kind of a, a presence. But I, I like the intelligent movement and the kind of smoothness smoothness of Jesus. You know, I think for me, the bigger concern was um, Cheech's insistence on having William, uh, Coutinho, Neymar all together and, and losing a bit of that solid uh, base and having uh, Ronaldo Augusto in there moving the ball forward. I think they lost a bit of that balance. Uh, I can understand why, obviously, <laughs> three very good players. But it did feel like at times Neymar was without a role and also involved in everything. So for me, that was the bigger concern, um, getting that balance there behind the striker. And I think Jesus is, is fine. And, uh, you know, I can see why Firmino is useful off the bench. And I can see why also people are drawn to him. He always is involved in things and making things happen and putting pressure on, which is nice to see. But I do think there's a lot of intelligence to the work that Jesus does and the guys have laid that out there as well. Okay. Next up, we have a look at Colombia, Simon. Um, yeah, it was kind of a, a strange World Cup for them, wasn't it? Yeah, the, the drama of that opening couple of minutes in their first game against Japan, where they found themselves down to 10 men, and after the 90 was up in that game, they found themselves um, with zero points and, uh, and with an uphill struggle ahead of them. They then bounced back magnificently and gave one of the probably the, one of the best performances we've seen in Russia in that in that three three nil win over Poland um, and and then they did pretty well to to find a way past Senegal in in that last game and, and claim a one nil win and then they faced England in in what has become <laughs> one of the most controversial and one of the most talked about World Cup matches. Of uh, of any World Cup, I, I think certainly certainly in my lifetime, anyway, it seemed to go on for days and days. So, where, how do you view Colombia's World Cup overall? Were you happy at all with it, or or is there just an overriding emotion of disappointment? Yeah, I think just shambolic, really, in a lot of ways. Before the World Cup, obviously, the days before the World Cup, will Hamas play? Won't he play? Will Cuadrado play? The medical team have since come out and said, you know, Hamas was injured. Like he was never going to play at all against England. There was no chance. We we lied to the media, and again, that's frustrated certain people as well. And and just everything was was a bit of a shambles. Obviously, going ten down to ten men, defensive error, Carlos Sanchez, 
silly red card. And then in that first half of that first game, Colombia looked, you know, they put in a good shift. They worked hard. They, they moved the ball well under obvious pressure from the Japanese side, which was very organised and quite impressive over the totality of the tournament. Um, but Colombia scored that nice free kick from Quintero, had a good first half, and then obviously the numerical advantage showed in the second half. And Colombia looked a bit stretched at times, as we've seen in qualifying. Obviously, a very inconsistent qualifying campaign with very few real highs, um, some decent results along the way, obviously, to qualify, but uh, nothing that particularly stood out as exciting along the qualifying. Second game, obviously, much improved. Very interesting to see Hammers and Quintero in the same side. Um, connecting really well. I think that Poland side wasn't great, but I think uh, Colombia took advantage of the space that they had. The Poland side sat off and that played well into Colombia, given that they had two playmakers on the field and Cuadrado had an exceptional game. That second game, Cuadrado was the best I've seen him play for Colombia, probably ever. Um, his decision-making was on point. So often, he, you know, he's a player who's going to draw two markers to him often because he'll beat one normally. Um, but in that game, he made the right decisions. He drew the markers, played it inside to Quintero. Quintero to Hammers, you know, we're laughing. I think throughout the, throughout the tournament as well, Falcao was an issue. Some people have come to his defence quite strongly. I've seen people praising his hold-up play. But in the first uh, round of games, he had the worst... Uh, he lost the ball more than any other player in the entire tournament. And that's looking at Panama. And that's looking at Tunisia. And, you know, you take your pick. Um, so that was a problem for Colombia. They didn't have a focal point in their attack. In the third game, it showed some of the challenges in terms of moving the ball forward. Carlos Sanchez came back in. He struggled a little bit to make that first pass alongside the defenders into the midfield, into Quintero, into Hammers. I think a lot of credit has to go to Senegal in that game as well. They were incredibly well organised and very quick to counter. A lot of credit for Cisse. Very unfortunate the way things turned out. But that Senegal side really impressed me. So I was content with a 1-0 win. Um, I don't think Colombia played particularly well, but... More than anything, I think they were prevented from playing by a very, very good defensive, impressive defensive play by Senegal. And they were unlucky not to capitalise in that first half. Uh, Colombia looked good in the second. The game against England. Uh, well, again, it's, it's, it's interesting to have one foot in both camps, so to speak. I think I was supporting Colombia. But to see both sides of things, because the Colombians are furious at how the English have cheated um, their way to the, to the next round. An American ref, of course, he's a friend with the English players. They speak the lang same language, for God's sake. How could they not be? Um, but <laughs> there were obviously contentious decisions from a Colombian's perspective. From an England perspective, also frustrations. The Colombian side clearly set out to disrupt. For me, I'm hugely frustrated because this was a cowardly display by Colombia. As, as, as brave as they were to come back into the game at the end, Peckerman set them out. As, as a massive underdog. He set them out as Panama had set out in the, the group stage to, to, to com, you know, prevent England from playing, to close off the space. You know, we had three defensive midfielders in there up against Delhi Ali and Jesse Lingard. I mean, they've had a good World Cup and England is a very impressive, organised side. But this is, these aren't world-class players. You don't use three men to mark these English attacking midfielders. And, you know, I, I there was definitely... I, I honestly well, see it as the worst tactical decision in, in in the whole World Cup, uh, just three three defensive midfielders in in this day and age is almost unheard of. No, no matter who you're playing, you know, if, if a non-league side went away to a Premier League side, I'm not sure they would use three defensive midfielders in there. You're basically exactly. giving yourself no outlet whatsoever exactly. through the middle of the pitch. 
So, yeah, for, for that first 75 minutes, I was sitting there as a as an England supporter thinking, you know, this is just so easy, you know, because Colombia just don't look capable of mounting an attack at all. Um, obviously, it ended up uh, being a lot more uh, dramatic than that. Um, but, but, yeah, Colombia lost that game on penalties in the end, but really they lost that game in that first 75 minutes, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, having three defensive midfielders is not even a good defensive strategy because England have absolutely no reason to keep anyone back. England played quite a conservative approach given that they had nothing to fear. As I mentioned, Falcao isn't good isolated and he couldn't have been more isolated. It wasn't clear whether Cuadrado was supporting his fullback as he'd done in the first three games where he was often behind Santiago Arias or if he was a support striker. And Quintero had some great moments in the World Cup but he's not the kind of guy who can single-handedly lead an attacking midfield charge you know he's not going to pick the ball up on the halfway line and run 40 yards to, to find the striker it was a formation that just couldn't work um, and even the three defensive midfielders it's not like there was Mateo Soribe who came on and was very good and was impressive across the tournament as as a defensively responsible mixed midfielder who can get forward so it was crazy and Again, the Colombian side, the way they approached the game, they were intentionally trying to disrupt England. And, and you know, that isn't in itself a terrible thing. Some teams can do that and be very successful. But Colombia don't have a great history, recent history of doing that. It never, never seems to work anyway. And, you know, all of the, this, you know, the dispute about dirty play. And, and I've seen some horrible things written about Colombia. You know, T, uh, Chris Waddle was talking about kicking them out of the next World Cup. I mean, you know... It's not as if England were Saints, but I do think Colombia set the tone in that game. And then again, you know, Falcao kicked in the head. Uh, so two or three dodgy possible red card situations. Even the penalty, there was some, you know, rough play by Kane in the lead up. And, you know, these are all... You leave our Harry alone. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it was both sides. And, you know, but for me, the 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 appalled, baffled Victorian housewife response to... Raheem Sterling brushing a coach's shoulder. You know, if that was assault, I've been assaulted on the tube today as well. Um, but, you know, I just think there was a lot of nonsense all around. And I think it was a horrible game, to be honest. And uh, But that was the tone set by Colombia. I think Colombia, if they go out to attack England, play Esquerdo on the left, Quintero on, uh, Cuadrado on the right, Quintero in the middle, have a proper outlet. You know, there's a game there, but this wasn't a game. So, you know, as close as Colombia came to progressing, one kick away... You know, I can't, I can't begrudge England for that result because Colombia didn't play to their potential and they were too scared. I, I do, I do get the grievances of of, of the of the Colombians, but I, I basically don't have any sympathy for them at all because of how they set out to 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 play this game. Um, so yeah, that's ultimately the thing from me. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm being biased in in, in that analysis, although. Many Colombians have told me otherwise. Um, Tom, any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's, um, it's it's strange because on paper you look at that Colombia side and you think it's probably actually um, a fair bit better than the team that played four years ago. But something about the qualification campaign and again that set up by Peckerman there in in the round of sixteen against England just always kind of hinted that maybe they weren't going to play with that same freedom and, and joyousness that they seemed to at the last World Cup. But I think it was it was really nice to see 
a number of world football index favourites really flourishing. Uh, obviously, Kindero, we've all been fans of him for you know four or five years now, and and it was it was it was nice to see the world wake up to his amazing talent. Um, although it's kind of like when when you've got a band that you like and and then they get a bit too popular, it's like oh damn, I kind of kind of liked it being just my little thing. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it was also good to see Jerry Mina show what he can do. Uh, certainly going forward, thought Davinson Sanchez had a great tournament. Um, and yeah, players like Barrios, Uribe, who probably aren't very well known um, to most European uh, viewers. I think they, I think they both showed that they're they're, they're really good, interesting midfielders. So yeah, it's it's going to be strange. And yeah, I wonder about Peckerman's decision making when it comes to to knock out uh, games obviously there's a the famous incident of when he was Argent- uh, Argentina manager at, in 2006 um, so yeah it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens next for Colombia I mean Simon what, what do you think then you know is going to happen with Peckerman or there's talk of him potentially going back to Argentina in a kind of director of football role um, yeah, what, what does the future hold for this side? Well, it looks like Peckerman's gone. That's been the reporting. And I just seen, again, you know, by the time you hear this, I might sound stupid, but I've just seen a message, a Twitter message as well from the Colombian, uh, the Colombian official site thanking Peckerman for his contribution. And it all does look like it may be coming to the end for Peckerman. What happens moving forward? You know, in terms of reflecting on his, his term, obviously, you know, hugely successful. Colombia went to two World Cups consecutively for the first time since the 90s. First time they've progressed from the group twice consecutively. On paper, he's done very, very well, but I think he's had a very good group. And I think if you look back at qualification, the problem with the England game has been evident throughout in terms of he's been very responsive. He's looked at the opposition and tried to pick a team that he thinks can stop them doing what they want to do. Uh, we've seen it against Argentina, we've seen it against Brazil, we've seen even Bolivia. They've picked a team... You know, against Bolivia, the physical attributes to survive at altitude. Okay, fine. Against Brazil, the players who can defend against a side with more possession. And that all makes sense. But at some point, you have to have faith in what you do and what you do well. Colombia are a team that can really pass the ball sharply. They have some good width out wide. You make that the basis and then fill in the gaps as you go along in terms of defensive work. At no point did Colombia try to assert themselves in the best way against England. And that's been the issue of going back. Moving forward... Again, I don't think there's many good Colombian coaches, which is a problem. Rueda's obviously taken, unfortunately. Um, Osorio may be available, and that would be an interesting appointment. Although, you know, Osorio has to be the main man. And it's hard to imagine Colombia without Falcao and Hamas having a big influence over the way they play. Obviously, we've seen with Osorio, he wants, he will pick the team for the occasion and has very clear tactical ideas and whether the Colombian players will go along with that as they need to do to make it successful is a big question outside of that. You know, I think having a Colombian coach for Colombia is a problem because there's very clear regionalism in the country. If they have a Costeño and they pick players from the coast, everyone's going to be furious. If they have a guy from Medellin and they pick players from Medellin, uh, it's Paisa bias. So I do think a foreigner is useful for Colombia. Uh, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Um, there's not many great Colombian options, but obviously looking uh, elsewhere in the continent there's plenty of different choices so we'll have to see how things look moving forward yeah it would certainly be interesting to see let's move on to talk about one of the most talked about sides in in, in this world cup and uh and that and that was argentina um tom 
I would say that Argentina were a candidate for the worst defensive side in the competition. A candidate for having the most chaotic FA, although probably share that title with Spain. Um, a candidate for the most crazy man management strategy throughout the tournament. And also a candidate for being the luckiest side to reach the last 16. But yeah, in the end, it ended in, uh, in tears. But they did find themselves 2-1 up against France with about what half an hour remaining, I think it was. And in some ways, given that complete and utter farcical mess and chaos which surrounded them throughout the tournament, that almost qualifies it as a partial success in my, in, in my mind. It was, uh, yeah... It, it, it was just crazy from start to finish, wasn't it? Oh, where do I even start? I mean, that was a crazy, crazy couple of weeks. It, like you said, it's it's strange because in the end, I think they probably fell wh- about where they deserved to. Um, they had a disastrous group stage, but they, that that win against Nigeria was just euphoric and you know one of for me one of the, the most exciting moments of the tournament and Messi's goal as well was pure brilliance. I don't, I'm not sure there's many players who could have scored that in the way that he did. And then to go out in such spectacular um, fashion against a good France side and, and a great game, you know, for so many reasons. Argentina shouldn't have had a chance at all of beating France, but somehow they they got into a situation where they might have done. I think they were they were soundly beaten and they deserved to go out, but it certainly allowed them to leave the tournament with a bit of pride intact, but let's not paper over the cracks. This was an absolutely shocking tournament from, well, from before, during, and, and even now it's, it's still rumbling on and it doesn't look like it. The, the fast is going to end anytime soon. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it all kind of, I mean, you can even look back to four years ago as the start of where this all was starting to fall apart. Certainly, the the moment where Martino left a couple of years ago, I think that things really kind of started to spiral down. But San Paolo came in, he, he got them there, but he just seemed like he was fighting short-term battle after short-term battle. And that short-term mentality is is certainly what's got Argentina in this situation where they don't have the quality players in in key areas of the pitch certainly defense as you mentioned um ha- having to rely on Mascherano uh, in defensive midfield was was just painful to watch it sometimes you know you know he had that kind of Terry Butcher look about him after the Nigeria game but again he I think I think he was he was very poor and and again, it, it, the fact that he, they had to start with him just shows how little planning, long-term planning and and, and sort of just foresight of... Obviously, this wasn't going to end well for a really slow defence with a chopping and changing style. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's even... It's, it's hard just to think about pinpointing one area where, where it all went wrong because it was such a an omni-shambles, really. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was entertaining, but... Not always in a good way. <laughs> Tom, the thing that was so interesting about this to me, and I said this on the World Cup After Dark podcast, is Argentina simultaneously convinced everybody that they were actually as bad as we said that they were, while somehow still overachieving where they probably should have been at this World Cup. I don't think anybody left this World Cup thinking that this was a good Argentina side. 
yet they somehow still got out of that group. Yeah, it's it was it was very odd in that sense. And but it's weird, you know, if Messi scores that penalty against Iceland, I think Argentina's tournament might have been slightly different. I still think they could have gone out in in the round of 16, but if they got that win, less pressure on Messi, you saw how much that was affecting him. Um, ahead of the Croatia game, they could have maybe taken a different approach against Croatia, been a bit more conservative, and you know maybe snuck a draw out of it. Or even if they'd lost, it wouldn't have been as as damaging. And then the Nigeria take, uh, game takes on a, a a different significance in context. So I don't think they would have ever topped the group. I I'm pretty sure in the uh, in the preview pod I sort of picked them to finish second behind Croatia in the group. Um, but I think again, like there's these tiny little moments that that change the course, and they could have easily crashed out in the group stage if it wasn't for Messi's brilliance and Marcus Rocco of all people popping up with that with that goal. But at the same time, they could, they could have maybe cruised through again, met France, lost maybe disastrously. Maybe they could have taken them to penalties. But I th- I, th- I think quarterfinals would have represented a a, a good tournament. But round of 16, yeah, everyone's aware of, of the issues, um, you know, in terms of the personnel that was selected, the constant changing of players, um, the whole Israel-Palestine debate and and just the the insert uncertainty that the, the AFA has brought ever since the death of Grondona. It's, uh, it's, it's an aging team. We didn't really see Lo Celso at all. Pavon kind of only had flashes of, of what he could do. And it's, yeah, the, the Argentina's not in a good place right now. And it, it's time to really rip up the the playbook and, and, and try something different and get the youngsters in now. Really try and think about the long term, but who knows whether they're they're capable of doing that. Yeah, and reports emerged today that um, Jorge Sampaoli looks like his, he, his contract will be terminated one way or another, which doesn't come as much as a surprise, really, given you know how, how things played out for him during this World Cup. So where do you see this Argentina side going uh, from, from this point onwards? You know, we've spoken about the other nations. You know, it, it looks like their future is pretty promising with, with, with youngsters coming through. With Argentina, that subject is a little bit more complicated. Um, there is a lot of negative press about Argentina not having you know, the same quality coming through. Although they did win... I, I do seem to recall that they won the under-20 South American Championships, didn't they? Not that long ago. Um, but I think uh, I, th- I think the next managerial appointment is obviously going to be huge. And also, we've already spoken about the possibility of uh, Beckerman returning to Argentina and, uh, and managing the youth setups again, which would certainly be an interesting move as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean... It's not even certain whether Sam Paoli is going yet. They had um, a meeting with Chiqui Tapia, the president of the AFA, and Angelisi. Um, and it turned out that, I mean, they want him to go, but he's got like a five-year contract. So he's he's seeing the, the, the pound signs or the, well, hopefully not peso signs, given the rate of inflation right now. But he's, 
he's going to stick around and try and get some money out of it. So at the moment, it looks like Sampaoli's going to stay on, but everyone's pretty sure that that's not going to be a long-term situation. It it depends who blinks first and whether the AFA even has the money to pay him off. You know, I'm pretty sure they're still paying bits off to Martino and Bowser. So they're in a really difficult financial situation. The the top Argentinian managers in the world, Simeone, Pochettino, or even the top managers in Argentina, like Gajalo, none of them want to take the Argentina team right now. So as you said, Peckerman as some kind of director of football, um, overseeing things. And I think Gareca is obviously um, a firm favorite to, to, to be someone who could be brought in. But right now, it's it's all up in the air. Um, Beca Chese, the, the assistant and under-20 manager, has, has left and gone back to Defensa y Justicia in the Argentinian league. Uh, so San Paulo looks like he's going to take over the under-20s for the Cotif tournament over... I think that's in, in Spain, somewhere near Valencia. Um, a, a tournament that Lautaro Martinez has, has previously shone in. Um, but I don't think that he even knows which coaches he's going to be bringing with him and, and which players are likely to be to be called up. So, yeah, it's it really is a shambles. And there's been just systematic neglect of the youth systems for about 10 years. They've kind of just rest on their laurels after that initial good work that Peckman did all, all that time ago. Um, so I think there's there's got to be root and branch changes at youth level. I think there are some good young players. It, it was a shame that Mamano was injured for this tournament because I think he would have shored up the defence and given it some pace. And it's, it's just a shame that they didn't have the foresight to to try some of these young talents like Askasivar, um like Lautaro Martinez, even to give Dybala and Icardi more game time before the World Cup. It was just that whole scenario behind the scenes meant that none of the managers could really plan for the future. And, you know, they didn't help themselves with some of their choices. But at the same time, just the situation wasn't ideal. So going forwards, I think up front is is never going to be an issue. Even if Messi... Aguero, Higuain, etc. don't play again. You've still got Icardi, Pavon, Diwala, um, Lautaro Martinez, Angel Correa, which which isn't too bad at all. It's just midfield, defence and fullbacks um, and even goalkeeper as well. So I think they've just got to get these guys like Paredes, like Lo Celso, um, like Ascasivar. Um, and even some of the young defenders, maybe guys who don't have that much experience, but if you get them playing international football now, then they're going to have three or four years international experience by the time the next World Cup rolls around. You, you've got to take a chance on some promising youngsters. You know, Mascherano got his first international cap before ever playing for Rua. So just trying to identify those young players and, and take a leaf out of Uruguay's book, really. So, um, yeah, it's... I don't think that Argentina are going to be a force for certainly six to eight years, but who knows? There's, there's always that, that talent out there for them. Yeah. I, I think the, I think the, the importance of Messi to this Argentina side, um, ultimately harmed them in, in more ways of just being sort of overly dependent on him on the pitch. But the very fact, just how important he was to the team and how much in love Sam Pauli was with him meant that 
yeah, it got to the point where he was basically a selector as well, wasn't he? Uh, of, of, of not only the squad, but it seems like he probably had influence over over the team selection as well. And, you know, in football, that's never really, that, that kind of dynamic's never really going to going to work for me I don't think yeah I agree certainly uh Messi and Mascherano I don't think they had quite as much power as a lot of the media was was making out but they they were certainly more influential as as the tournament went on and and Sampaoli's leadership was undermined and and certainly he wasn't the man in in sole charge so yeah Messi's an interesting dilemma it's going to I, I wouldn't blame him to kind of call it a day on his international career. And I think it would actually force the, the team to move on and try and construct a, more of a collective rather than let's just pass to Messi. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it might even be a case that they can try and sort things out and get a good team and then see if they can reintroduce Messi as part of that team. Um, but I have a feeling that he might not see it worth all the the pain and suffering that he's had to go through. Yeah. I, I, I think that, I think Messi will hang around for the Copa America next year, at least. And then, and then see from there, because I'm sure he's still desperate to win something with Argentina. No? Yeah. One last chance you'd think. Okay. Uh, the final team we need to look at is, uh, is Peru. They won a, they won a lot of friends, but unfortunately for them, they didn't win win enough football matches. Um, I think, yeah, going into the tournament, uh, the, the one thing I kept repeating anyway was was this idea, you know, you know, can they control their emotions? Will the occasion overwhelm them? And I, I, I think ultimately it, it proved a little bit too much, uh, the whole experience for them. Uh, that game against Denmark where they certainly played better football than Denmark, so it wasn't like they froze on the big stage. But when it came to showing the composure needed at, at, at this level, you know, but they came up short. And that is also to do with my other big concern about them going into the World Cup, which is whether they did just have quite enough quality in, in, in that side. Um, and in that first game with uh, Guillermo missing, um, which was a strange decision in itself, and we discussed that a little bit pre-pod, where you know you fight so much for a player to to be available for for selection in this World Cup, and then not to start him against Denmark. In hindsight, certainly seems a very odd decision. Although I think many could see some sense in what Gareca tried to do against Denmark. Um, yeah, so the Quaver penalty miss will go down in uh, in Peruvian history as uh, as as one of the big what if moments. I think no. Who, who, who wants to give their assessment on Peru? Yeah, you could definitely see that the emotions were getting to them. And, and at times that was good in times of their attacking play. They definitely didn't embarrass themselves in any of these ties. They were in all of the ties until the very end. Um, but yeah, you could just see that the, the occasion was big for some of these players. And obviously Cueva, the disappointing miss, but an interesting game. I think Tapia was very good and his absence was obviously a big, big loss for them uh, when he was out. Uh, I had my concerns about Rodriguez, obviously a player who got a lot of praise in Peru for his performances. Uh, he did get hooked at halftime against France. You know, I just think his legs maybe have not quite there. He hasn't played much football this year, 
been permanently injured and also I think at times didn't really fancy going to play football in Tunja um, and some of the difficult away legs in Colombia. It looked like he was saving himself for the World Cup, but I think he kind of lacked a bit of that uh, first team football uh, in the run up to the tournament. It maybe had a bit of an effect because he's been important for Peru going backwards, but for me, he was lacking a little bit and that is a concern moving forward at centre-back. Um, but again, you know, we, we shouldn't be too critical. This is a Peruvian side um, in a tough group that had some imp- impressive performances, caught the eye. The Both the fullbacks, uh, Avincula and Trauco, looked very, very good. Tapia in midfield was very good. I think Edison Flores kind of was a bit of a disappointment for me. Um, I would always go for a target man forward, but um, you know, I can see I can see the attraction of Farfan a bit more dynamic. But you know, I think given that the pace that this side have out wide and the qualities, Carrillo had an excellent World Cup as well. Um, probably will secure himself a nice move at the off the back of this performance uh, potentially. Um, but yeah, you know, I think it's a dynamic team that did well on the wings. But I think if you have that pace out wide, you have that creation with Cueva, you want your best striker in the box, even if he wasn't always at his at his very best. Uh, Guerrero in this tournament but you know I think a, an impressive performance they were back at the World Cup they've shown that they're competitive at this level um, some disappointing unfortunate moments uh, got a win at the end so I think you know while they didn't get through the group and they didn't make a, an impression I think there's uh, you know reasons to be optimistic uh, for Peru um, some good players the fullbacks are like Tapia in the midfield uh, Cueva is a very good player we all know that and he showed that uh, penalty miss aside, um, good wingers, you know, I think a good solid team. And I think uh, some more to come, although I do feel they need to freshen up that defense as well a little bit. I think the interesting thing for me with Peru is where do they go next? It kind of feels like this team is, has hit its ceiling a little bit, kind of like you said, Simon. They, they punched a bit above their weight to even get to the World Cup. Okay, now what do they do? It looks like Ricardo Gareca is is going to be leaving Peru potentially to go manage Argentina eventually. He's certainly open to the idea of leaving. Where do Peru go next as far as a manager is concerned? Where do they go as far as refreshing their talent pool? Um, There's part of me that kind of thinks that this is just a one-off thing for Peru, that they got really hot down the stretch of South American qualification, took advantage of a relatively weak South American qualification pool, and got to the World Cup could have done better than they did at the World Cup. But now I don't know that I see this Peru team continuing to improve. I kind of see them falling back to that level that they were at, where they're level with, you know, Paraguay and, and behind Chile and, and you know, fighting it out with, with Venezuela more than they are with Colombia and Uruguay. So I'm really curious to see where Peru goes next and what the next steps for this team and for this federation are, because I'm not sure that they're particularly clear. Yeah, I agree with uh, the other guys. I think they've said most of what we can say about a Peru side that after the first game, you know, that was pretty much their the, the one game they really had to win. And again, uh, that just like Messi missing that penalty, if Cueva had uh, managed to slot that home, then we could have been looking at a different tournament. The, the question about the future is interesting. I do think there are some young-ish players in the squad, maybe not of the, the quality of the likes of uh, Guerrero, but I think Guerrero has done a good job of maybe laying the foundations for for this team to, to certainly remain competitive, even if the next World Cup 
might be a stretch if you if you see the likes of uh, Chile improving and and I certainly am tipping Venezuela to make Qatar. Um, but who knows with the World Cup expanding, then th- there's a way in, and uh, hopefully this gives them the uh, the confidence that they're not just there to to make up the numbers and and with a bit more experience that emotion might not get to them the next time. Okay, well, well that's great, guys. Um... I think that wraps up this discussion. From this point onwards, the South American Football Show should be back to being weekly again. Um, there's still some things to discuss, really, off the back of this World Cup, and, and we're and we're hopefully cover those things in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to come round the virtual table to find find out where you can find these lovely guests of mine on Twitter. First, I come to you, Austin. Where can people find you? I'm at Austin underscore James 906 on Twitter. And a quick plug for me for the World Cup After Dark podcast. Uh, it's everything that this podcast is not, and you should listen to it. There's only a couple more episodes left because the World Cup is wrapping up. Uh, but you should not miss it. Simon? Yeah, I would second that. Uh, I'm a big fan of Austin's sexy late night podcast. Definitely check it out. You might be disappointed if that's what you expect, but it's definitely a lot of fun. I enjoy that on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. And given that I've been quite negative about Colombia, I will say Sierra Gol de Yepes, Sierra Gol de Baca, Tramposo Ingleses, you were puta de mierda. And uh, leave it at that. Just to make sure no one unfollows me because I was being quite negative. Partido Robado. There we go. Got that in. Everyone, like me again. Cheers. <laughs> and Tom. Yeah, you can follow me at TomRobo89 on Twitter. Um, been haven't been too active in terms of articles and and spotlight pods. Just enjoying the World Cup mainly, but that's uh, that's going to change, and there's hopefully be a, a steady flow of of articles coming up. And so yeah, that that that's it from me. And you can find me at AdamBrandon84 on Twitter. I expect there's going to be some good news coming up in the next few weeks, World Football Index related, so keep an eye on that um, to do with this show, of course, South American Football Show. Um, If you do enjoy listening to us, then please rate and review us on iTunes. That will help a lot. And it's just left for me to say a huge thanks to the guys once again for joining me, and it's goodbye from me. 